Listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Good morning. My name is Greg Carter. I am the worship pastor here. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Uh, but today I do. I get to teach and share as we start, as we begin our new series called "Asking for a Friend." Uh, in this series, we're going to be responding to questions um, that we might be curious about, but are afraid to ask or embarrassed to ask, you know, questions like, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? I'm just asking for a friend. Does, does God wear clothes? I'm just asking for a friend. Not really. Uh, the phrase asking for a friend um, usually refers to a question that we're afraid or embarrassed to ask. And so we pretend to ask on behalf of another person. I remember hearing some of these questions in junior high health class. You know, so does the stork not play a part in the baby-making process? Because I was one, I mean, my friend was wondering. He thought this big white bird delivered the babies. And, okay, you guys are teaching an alternate theory up in here. Okay, I'll, I'll tell my friend. When it comes to our faith, uh, there are certain questions that some of us may be curious about, but we're afraid to ask. Um, maybe they don't seem, doesn't seem polite to ask about, or maybe you're worried of how people will respond. You know, maybe they, if I'm honest with my questions, maybe they, they'll think I'm a heretic or a troublemaker or I don't believe. And it can be lonely in certain Christian circles when you want to ask a question, but you think, am I the only one? And so in this series, we're going to bring some of those questions out into the open for the next five weeks uh, we're going to wrestle with questions like how could a loving and good God allow so much suffering and evil? And doesn't science contradict the Bible? And is Jesus really the only way to God? Our goal in this series is not to present the final answer on everything, uh, but simply to open up the conversation. You know, our words will be imperfect and the conversations that we're bringing into the table will be incomplete, uh, but we just want to open up the conversations and invite you to seek truth in community instead of wrestling and struggling and doubting in isolation. Today, I ask the question, is it okay to have doubts? Today, I'm going to tell a bit of my story of how I went through a season of doubting and questioning and struggling. And we're also going to look at the story of the disciple Thomas to see what we can learn from his story, his moments of doubting and questioning. And by the end, I'm hoping we'll see that our faith has always been one of, of questioning and wrestling and doubting and moving forward in community towards hope. So before I tell my story, uh, I want to set it up by, um, by explaining this three-stage process um, the idea of, this, of these three stages came from uh, psychology and philosophy, but most recently they've been used uh, to describe the three-stage process of faith development that, that many Christians go through. And as we see on the screen, uh, the three stages are, in simple terms, construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. And now there's a lot of baggage on that word deconstruction, uh, because it's often associated with deconversion. 
but I, I want to include it as part of the overall process because it was part of my story. And I want to include it because the hope is that it would lead us to reconstruction. And so let's start with stage one, construction. Uh, construction is the initial building up of your faith system. You know, throughout your childhood, you're handed these bricks, uh, these building blocks. And brick after brick, we build our belief system based on what our parents tell us and what our par- pastor told us and what our community told us. You know, brick after brick, our family, our community help us lay the foundation for our faith and our belief system. But just because you grew up Christian doesn't mean that everything you believe comes from the Bible. Uh, for instance, my grandmother in the South believes that interracial marriage is not in line with the Bible. Or maybe you were taught to believe uh, to have a low view of women. Or maybe you were taught to believe to have an extreme view of the prosperity gospel. There's even some denominations who believe that you should not have musical instruments in the church. You know, Christians, they sometimes add things. They twist things and sometimes distort things that, that are not biblical truths. And sometimes those beliefs, those faulty bricks get passed down and they inform the construction plans of the next generation. And so I'm going to tell you a bit of my construction stage Um, I grew up in a Christian home, went to church, youth group, summer camp, had community, mentors, uh, Christian leaders to look up to, and I'm grateful for a lot of the the things that were passed down to me. Uh, There were a couple couple wacky beliefs about predicting the end times, um, but nothing too bad. Uh, One thing that was missing for my construction stage was a dependence and an awareness of the Holy Spirit. For some reason, it it just wasn't talked about, wasn't mentioned. But overall, my default structure was solid, was good. Uh, And I was a question asker. I still am. Uh, But as a kid, I asked a lot of questions. I wanted to know, you know, if God created everything, who created God? And where do the dinosaurs fit in in the Bible? I was just a curious kid and I depended on the adults in my life to answer my questions. And even as a kid, I could tell that the adults were mostly just making it up as they went. Some would just quote me a Bible verse. Um, Some would ramble on and on until I grew tired of listening. Some would give me a lame answer that was just too easy to poke holes in. As I grew a little older, I would meet with my pastor. I would ask my pastor, the lead pastor of the church, I would go into his office with a particular topic that I had been studying. For example, I would ask him about um, the young earth versus old earth debate and how he read Genesis. And it was interesting how he responded. Uh, He didn't just give me an answer and he didn't just quote a Bible verse. He would listen You know, he would listen to the things I was struggling with, listen to the things I was questioning, and he would meet me right where I was at as if he had been there before. I got the sense that he had wrestled with these topics as well. Uh, He would say things like, you know, there's, there's two sides to this topic. This scholar says this, and this theologian says this. Both are informed by Scripture. 
I happen to be leaning this way right now, but I'm not quite sure. I would have to research it some more. And then he would usually end with some insight that would both deepen my faith, but also expand the mystery of the topic, would open my eyes to new horizons of what could be explored. And I walked away feeling heard, satisfied with the responses, and also with the sense that these topics are nuanced and complicated, but that God was there in the mystery, in the nuances, and in the complexities. Now, many of us who grow up in a Christian home, we get to a point, we reach a point where we start to re-examine the beliefs that we were handed. This is the deconstruction stage of the process that some of us will go through, not all of us. Deconstruction. This is when you challenge um, the worldview you're handed. You know, you're questioning, you're dismantling, you're re-examining, you're pulling out the bricks of your original structure. And for many, this can be a healthy and necessary um, step in their overall journey. You know, for some, this is like a home renovation. You know, you need to make sure you take out some parts and clean things up before you put it back in. Take out some faulty bricks before you rebuild. That's all healthy. But for some people, for other people, it's like taking a wrecking ball. It's like taking a demolition crew and dismantling every brick. You know, your faith wall crashing and crumbling, wreckage shattered about, left with nothing but ruins and rubble of your previous faith. Now, I don't recommend the demolition approach. It's not ideal, but it does seem that some people have to go through that, or they just do go through that in their, in their faith journey. And if you're going through this right now, um, right, because this could be, this kind of deconstruction is agonizing, it's excruciating because you don't know what life is going to look like on the other side of the process after the demolition is complete. If you are going through this right now, I don't know if, if I can help. But I will say this, sometimes it's helpful to have a word from a fellow traveler who's been there before and who has the scars to prove it. You know, sometimes that can be helpful. So I would say there is a healthy way to deconstruct and there is a dangerous way to deconstruct. There's a good and there's a bad way. When done well, it's a sincere examination of your beliefs to get rid of the false conceptions and the ugly beliefs and the bad ideas that distort our understanding of God and what it means to be a Christian. That's, that's a good way. But bad deconstruction is when we deconstruct and doubt for self-serving reasons, when we just do away with the parts of the Bible that we don't like because it doesn't fit our lifestyle, doubting for moral convenience, you know, looking for loopholes uh, that will give you permission to do whatever you want. That's bad, unhealthy deconstruction. And also what we'll see, as we'll see in my story, unhealthy deconstruction is done in isolation without the input and help from community. So here is a bit of my deconstruction stage. So as I got older, I was struggling with all these truth claims that were coming at me from different, from different areas. 
These truth claims seem to contradict my faith. And at the same time, you know, on top of that, I think I was dealing with some church hurt, you know, wounded by church leadership. And thinking back, I was probably disappointed. Disappointed that God didn't come through in the way that I thought he would. And this led to a deep season of deconstruction. And I isolated away from community. And I started to dismantle the blocks of my faith. You know, in this time, I was thirsty for knowledge. I read book after book, listened to lectures. I wanted to hear what the other side had to say, what the other side had to say. I read a book uh, that, that claimed that Chris, Christianity had been a destructive force throughout the centuries instead of a positive one. I read books by popular scientists that claimed that science contradicted the Bible. And I examined those beliefs. I read books about textual criticism and how there's supposedly uh, thousands of scribal errors and contradictions in the Bible. And there's all those parts of the Bible that I just can't make sense of, especially in the Old Testament. I looked into philosophy, like grappled with things like how can a God, a loving and good God, allow so much suffering? And is Jesus really the only way? You know, if I was born in India, would I be a Hindu? Would I be a Hindu? Is, is Christianity just the, the expression in the West of what it means to follow God? And does God really care about me? Or is he just this distant creator, God of deism, who set everything in motion like some cosmic science experiment and then walked away like he had better things to do? I wrestled with these things. On my own, I didn't talk to anybody. I was maybe worried of what they would think or maybe they would reject or dismiss me. Maybe they would just give me a Bible verse and then go on their way. And so I dismantled my faith in isolation. Lonely, miserable, my heart and heart kept me in a place of intellectual, um, was cold intellectual, intellectualism. But I just want to know the truth. Or so I thought. One huge flaw in my process, was I was only reading one side of the debate. I was only reading you know, the other side. But again, a big, the bigger flaw to my process, what I was doing it alone, no life group, no mentor, no pastor. My faith was in the stage of being demolished and I wasn't reaching out for help. Now, luckily, my faith journey does not end here. There's a final stage called reconstruction. So reconstruction is a stage in which you rebuild your faith. That's now, it's now your own and not just handed to you. It's a faith that's been purged and purified. People who have gone through reconstruction often have a deep conviction for God and scripture, but they also have a high capacity for just how strange and confusing the human condition is. 
You know, they've gone through the stages of wrestling and questioning and struggling, but now they have an awareness of just how nuanced and complex some of the bigger questions are of our faith. They've gone through an oversimplified faith and an over-cynical faith and are now in a life-giving season of embracing mystery and connecting to God, people, and mission. So how does one reconstruct their faith? How do you, how do you rebuild a faith that you dismantled? Uh, let's look at scripture to see what it says about doubt and reconstruction. So I, I want to talk about Thomas, the disciple Thomas. We know him as doubting Thomas, skeptical, disbelieving Thomas, uh, but he wasn't always that way. He started off believing Thomas, convinced Thomas. There's a scene in uh, John chapter 11. Some of the disciples are warning Jesus to not go back to Jerusalem because they want to kill him there. They almost stoned him last time and they're plotting to kill him. And so they're, they're saying, Jesus, don't go back there. And this is what Thomas said. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us, all, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us go too. You know, let's go too, and if we die, so be it. That doesn't sound like a doubting Thomas. That sounds like a confident, convinced, believing Thomas. He believes in Jesus. He trusts in Jesus. You know, Jesus is the Messiah. He believes Jesus is the Messiah, this powerful leader who's going to free the captives and rule and reign with power. But then, shortly after that, Jesus is captured. Jesus is captured, and he turns into this lamb-like individual. He doesn't resist. He hardly says a mumbling word as they drag him around. They spit on him. They slapped him. They whipped him. They hung him up, hung him up on a cross so that he would suffer and die. And during this time, the disciples, most of, most of the disciples ran and they hid. Their faith was rattled. Their core beliefs were shattered. This is not what they expected. This is not what they believed in, right? You don't crucify a Messiah. Or the Messiah was supposed to be this powerful leader who restored justice, who ruled and reigned with power and authority, but here Jesus dies on a cross. They put a spear through him. He was buried. He was dead. He was stiff. He was cold. He was buried. And here Thomas is not so, not so confident anymore. Thomas is confused. He's questioning, he's doubting, he's deconstructing his, his faith in the way that he sees Jesus. Everything he believed is being dismantled and demolished. His faith wall, faith wall is crumbling to the ground. He's left more with nothing more than the ruins and rubble of his previous faith. This is not what the Messiah is supposed to do, and this is not what's supposed to happen to the Messiah. Days later, the disciples are gathered together. 
You know, Jesus died, their, their rabbi died, their Messiah died, but they're still coming together. They're still meeting. They're still reading the scripture and they're praying together. The foundation of their, of their faith is very shaky, but they're still there for each other in community. But Thomas is not there. In the story, Thomas, for some reason, is not there. Thomas isn't there with his brothers. He's not there in a community. He's not there to receive prayer. He's not there to hear the Psalms sung or hear the scripture read. Thomas isn't there. And Thomas isn't there when Jesus appears. He's not there when the resurrected Jesus appears and shows them the wounds in his hands and his feet. Thomas isn't there when Jesus eats with them and answers all their questions. In John chapter 20, verse 24, this is where the story picks up. Now, Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus came. He was not there. And so the other disciples later on told him, you know, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas responds, I don't, I don't know. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I don't know if I can believe that. And this is why we call him Doubting Thomas. He's the doubting, skeptical, disbelieving disciple. But I can relate to Thomas. You know, those other disciples believe because they saw it with their own eyes. Thomas is the only skeptical one because he's the only one who hasn't seen it. I can relate to Thomas Sometimes people tell me stories of answered prayer, of charismatic healings, cancer and remission because of prayer, supernatural spiritual things. One leg was shorter than the other, and then we prayed, and then both legs were the same length. And I'm like, wow, that is an amazing story. That is amazing. That's awesome. Can you show me a picture? You know, I want to believe, and that does sound awesome, but is there a video? Can you take me to that place? I kind of want to see it for myself. I want to see the medical records and the x-ray scans. Thomas just wants some, some proof. He wants to see it for himself. So the next verse. A week later, so later on the disciples were in the house again, and now Thomas was with them. Thomas is back with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, you know, Put your finger here. See my, my hands and reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas responds with, with what seems like a declaration of worship. He says, My Lord and my God. The most skeptical, disbelieving, doubting disciple is the first disciple to refer to Jesus as my God. And here we see Jesus show up for the doubter. Jesus showed up for the, the one who is not believing, the one who is doubting. He meets Thomas right where he's at, right in the middle of his doubt, and he gives him what he needs. He, he doesn't shame him or guilt him or reject him. He doesn't disqualify him as a disciple. He meets him right where he's at. 
And here we see uh, Thomas step into the third stage of his journey, you know, because first he started off as a firm believer, and then he went through a stage of questioning and doubting, not sure what he believed, wrestling in isolation. But here we see him uh, come back to a greater conviction and rebuild a deeper faith. But then later on, at the end of Matthew, there's a scripture that we often skip over, and I've never noticed this before. Days later, this is after the Thomas story, it says the 11 disciples, they were up on this mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And check this out. It said when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. This is after the Thomas story. This is after all the disciples had seen the resurrected Jesus. It says they worshiped, but some doubted. Some people find it hard to believe that some of the disciples were still doubting. And why did the author feel the need to include that at the end of his gospel? Why say like, oh, by the way, some of the people closest to Jesus were still not quite sure, were still doubting. I think the text is saying that questioning and wrestling and struggling and doubting is a part of our faith journey. Our faith has always been one of wrestling and questioning and doubting and moving forward in our faith journey. I think of David in the Psalms. You know, he worshiped and he doubted. He praised and he lamented. He questioned God and he bowed before him. I think of in the Old Testament, you know, Jacob wrestled with God. And the name Israel, the name Israel means to wrestle with God, to struggle with God. And I think about the man who said to Jesus, you know, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And I think about the disciples uh, the people closest to Jesus who are still struggling with doubt even after everything they saw. And I think about my own story of faith and doubt, of praising and questioning, of wrestling and worship. Even recently, just a couple months ago, my trust, my faith gave way to doubt. My wife and I were sitting at a table at KO's house. If you don't know KO, um, Sherry and KO are sisters up here. Uh, they sit at the front row, and they are here almost every Sunday, way early in the morning. They're praying for the worship team and for the church every Sunday morning. They're prayer warriors. And on this night, we're at KO's house. And they're going to pray for my wife and I, for our situation but there was a part of me that doubted that God was even listening, that he would even hear and that he even cared in that moment. See, three years, three years ago, we moved from California. We left family and friends, and we left our house. And my wife loved her house. That was her secure place, her, her place of stability. She homeschooled our girls in that house worked from home in that house, hosted in that house. And then we moved up to Idaho 
And since then, we've been bouncing around, getting bumped out of different rental homes, which is fine for a while, but we reached a point where we could just tell we need some kind of stability for our girls. It didn't feel like a material want. It felt like a need. But the market was so crazy, people were bidding fifty, seventy-five thousand over the asking price. And we didn't have a big budget. We couldn't compete with the bidding wars. And so we shopped around for a bit. And then we went through the stages of lowering our expectations. And, and there was a day after getting some more bad news about our possibility of buying when it felt like all hope, all trust, all faith was drained from us. No trust, no energy to pray, just deeply discouraged for whatever reason, it's not like this is the worst thing that we've ever been through, but you never know what's going to pull you into a moment of discouragement and doubt. And I'm usually the guy who trusts God through every trial and every storm. I'm, I'm Mr. Optimistic. I'm Mr. Hopeful. I'm Mr. Uh, be grateful, count your blessings. God's going to provide. He always has. But on this night, We're sitting at the table in K.O.'s house and Sherry and K.O. tell us to write a list, to make a list of all the things we need in a house and that we're going to pray over the list. And if I'm honest, there was a big part of me that doubted that God even cared in that moment. You know, and I'm the worship leader. I'm the worship pastor. I'm the guy who leads the church in songs about how God is faithful and how he always provides and how he's good in every season. And even worse, uh, just months before, I was up here on this stage preaching a sermon about prayer. And in this moment, I can't, I don't have the strength to pray, don't have the hope or faith to pray and bring my situation before the Lord. I didn't have the hope that it would accomplish anything. But there was a small part of me, a fraction of me, that said, okay, yes, Yes, of course, let's pray. And we did, we wrote the list of things we needed in the house and we prayed over it. They prayed. They prayed in a way that we couldn't. And after the prayer, it wasn't like all of life's problems were solved, but there was a sense of peace, a sense of peace that I had known before but had lost somehow. The very next morning, the next morning, this house pops up online. And we call right away. We go there. We get a walkthrough. We meet the owner. We walk around the house, and there is a sense of peace, like this is where we're supposed to be. And the lady who owned the house had pictures of Jesus all over the walls at different places throughout the house. And the house is small, it's humble, it's on our dream house, but it does have everything we need, everything that was on the list. And the lady said that she had been praying for the right family. She didn't want to deal with realtors or bidding wars, she was just waiting for the right family. And right there we agreed to buy the house and she canceled all the other walkthrough appointments. And it all just came together. I don't tell that story to demonstrate that we always get what we pray for or that we always get what we want. 
the point of that story is that community was there in our time of hopelessness and doubt and discouragement. Because there's some things that we walk through in life that are just too tough to navigate on our own, and that's why it's good to include others in our journey to help sort through the rubble and ruins of our faith and help us rebuild. You know, through long seasons of deconstruction and even through brief moments of doubt and discouragement, it's important, it's essential to press forward and move forward with community. And that's what we see in the story of Thomas. You know, because he did, he isolated for a bit, but then he went back to community. And we see later on in the book of Acts, he was there with his brothers, with his faith community, when the Holy Spirit arrived on the day of Pentecost. He was there. You know, because Jesus said he would send the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth to guide and teach and instruct and give eyes to see and empower and illuminate the truth. And the Holy Spirit was an essential part of the faith journey of the disciples. And I believe the Holy Spirit is an essential part of our faith journey as well. So going back to my faith journey, journey, this is how I rebuilt my faith. My reconstruction started with the Holy Spirit. So I had spent a couple years just feeling far away from God. I didn't go to church, didn't worship, didn't pray. And one day I was in the practice room of the university. This is where I spent hours practicing classical music. And for some reason, I start to sing and play this worship song, the song Heart of Worship. I don't know why, it just came out of nowhere. It seemed like I retrieved it from another lifetime. It had been so long. As I sang it, it felt like the atmosphere changed. I had been spiritually dead, but as I sang that song, you know, something awakened that used to be dead What used to be sleeping was now awakened. I felt uh, like I had a whole new awareness of the Holy Spirit, the presence that was there all along. And then slowly, just gradually, I went back to church. I went back into a faith community with a new fascination for the Holy Spirit. I found myself gravitating towards people who talked about the Holy Spirit. I surrounded myself with worship leaders who didn't just sing songs, but who were spirit-filled and fully aware of the Holy Spirit. I had spiritual mentors who prayed for me and encouraged me and built me up. And it was like I had new eyes to see, like I was seeing through a new lens, a new filter. And during that time, I developed a, a prayer life in which I listened more than I spoke and worship, it's like there was another layer of beauty and truth to the songs, and I had a sense of healing and peace in my own time of worship. And I continued to study, to read, and to listen, but I listened to the Christian responses to all of those topics that caused me to wrestle and question and doubt earlier on. And eventually, brick by brick, by brick, my faith was reconstructed. 
You know, it was the Holy Spirit who opened my eyes, softened my heart, guided me back to community. And it was community that pulled me out of that, that place of deep doubt and unhealthy deconstruction. Right now, I'm going to ask Ryan to come back out to play and sing a song. And as he does, I just want to allow for time to reflect. Um, I want to allow for space to hear from the Lord. Maybe there's someone in here who's in, just in that stage of deep deconstruction, and maybe you're dismantling your faith, or maybe there's someone in your life, someone you know who is wrestling and struggling and questioning with doubt. Right now, let's just allow for space to hear from the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be just so aware of your presence here right now, guiding and leading and speaking. And I pray that we would be open to listen and to follow your lead. Amen. In the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. And we're called to strengthen one another, to pray for one another, to help renovate and rebuild and to build each other up. You know, though doubt may come and go, ultimately we're called to be builders. We're called to be builders. And there's going to come a time in your life when someone in your life, maybe a family member or a friend, someone you love, may be struggling, wrestling with doubt. And here, in this moment, I want to give some suggestions for how to approach those moments and those conversations with compassion and wisdom. First, I would say, you want to listen more than you speak. Listen patiently. Listen without condemning. You know, listen and truly demonstrate that you care about the person. I would also say to approach the conversations with humility and curiosity, knowing that you are not a walking brain on a stick who knows all the answers to all the mysteries in the universe. And also, don't shame or guilt or dismiss them if they ask difficult questions. Don't try to guilt them towards belief or manipulate or, or coerce them to believe. Our goal is just to be open and to invite them to process and to discuss together. And I would say, I would suggest to seek guidance from the Holy Spirit on what to say and what not to say and how just to, to be there for the person. Now, if you are someone who is going through some kind of stage of, of demolition or dismantling or deconstruction or doubting or questioning, I would suggest to you to not withdraw from community. You know, stay in community so that your deconstruction doesn't turn into an unhealthy demolition. Don't walk through the desert of modern skepticism alone. There's a whole tribe of us in the desert. Let's walk together.
And I would say be open to the Holy Spirit. In those times when you're doubting and when nothing makes sense and when you don't have the strength to pray and when it feels like you're drowning in doubt and unbelief and when it feels like your faith wall is collapsing, I would say be open to the guidance, to the voice, to the ever-present help of the spirit of truth. And finally, to answer the question, is it okay to have doubts? I would say yes. It's okay to have questions and to wrestle with doubts. For some of us, it's part of the journey. And the church should be the safest safest place to bring your doubts and your questions. The church should be a place where we can say, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. You know, as we continue in the series and as we continue on our, on our walk and our faith journey, my hope is that real life would be a place where we can be open about our faith and open about our doubts, that this would be a safe place for our questions and our doubts. Because our faith has always been one of wrestling and questioning and doubting, but moving forward in community on our faith journey. So right now, let's get our elements ready for communion and let's take communion together as a family, as a community. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's remember him. Oh, let's pray. So Lord, we thank you that you are the God who restores, who reconciles. You are the God who rebuilds and reconstructs and makes all things new and makes all things whole. I pray that we would, would be open to listen and to hear and to follow your lead. And even in times of deep discouragement, I pray that we'd be just open to your voice and to your presence that is always there. We thank you for community. We thank you for the people in our life, the people who build us up and pray for us and encourage those builders in our life thank you for who you are and all that you've done. And we respond by saying, my Lord and my God, we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.